are listening to Confessions of a High School Bible Teacher. Hey everybody, this is Christopher Seals, and across the table from me is... The Wayne Randolph. The Wayne Randolph. Why not? Let's put, yeah, if we put definite article pronouns on the fronts of our names, <laughs> uh, it makes us more important. Yeah. Um, hey, Wayne. Yeah, what's up, dude? Have uh, you ever watched a show called Growing Pains? Wow, you're going back to my era. Yes, I have. Yeah. Um, there is an individual um, that is in that show that's really important for our topic today. Do you know his name? His name is Kurt Cameron. <laughs> I see where you're going. That is, that like is his name. Um, he was a star of hit uh, movies such as Fireproof yep. and Courageous. Was he in Courageous? I have no context, Chris. I'm sorry. Uh, I think he's a part of it, though. Yeah. He also was in a hit movie series called Left Behind. Hmm. Um, I had a friend who had the book Left Behind, um, and he affectionately put it on his uh, left posterior end, um, and he was like, where's the right behind? <laughs> That's dumb. Uh, <laughs> have you ever heard of a man called Harold Camping? No. Um, Harold Camping, a few years ago, said that the world was going to end on March 21st, I believe. I do recall Harold Camping. Yes. Yeah. And then... Um, God bless him. He after after everyone didn't disappear, um, he then came out on the radio to say, um, or on his on his radio show to say, you know what? I had misread the scriptures. Um, the actual date is October twenty first. March twenty first was a, a spiritual rapture, mm. um, and I believe October twenty first was going to be the real rapture. Um, but those dates came and went. Yeah. Um, I believe it was in twenty thirteen, mm. um, and. Um, what well, he is the late Harold Camping. Um, but I, I think that I want to, the reason I start <laughs> with this, um, is because those sorts of, um, eschatological games that can be played, and we will define these terms later. Um, when it comes to talking about the end of the world, oftentimes within Christianity, we think that the point is the end of the world mm. or, um, or knowing when the end of the world will come. Yeah. Um, and so we thought we, we would spend an episode sort of talking through uh, eschatology. <laughs> um, and eschatology is just the fancy Christian way of s- saying the study of the eschaton, which is a fancy way of saying the study of the end, the end times. Um, Those are loaded terms. Yes. End times. How, end how, times left behind. How many times a year, if you had to come up with an estimate, how many times a year are you asked by students... <laughs> Your, your views on the end times. Um, how many times am I actually asked for my views? Um, or just about yeah, the yeah, topic. Yeah, yeah, I would, yeah. I would say easily 100. Okay. Uh, easily, easily 100. Um, yeah, it, it's the question that comes up a lot. Um, the way that I teach, uh, I, I just, I like, you know, going through some information and then just opening it up to questions. And sometimes we even start units with just asking questions and um, it seems like inevitably, um, it, actually in any Christian circle, I wouldn't even say just our students, right? Yeah. Um, inevitably, end times is right there at the forefront. Yeah. Um, in fact, I, I think, uh, I don't know who coined the phrase, but um, especially here in the West, it seems that we are um, apocryphobic, um, <laughs> right? That we, we kind of have this like obsession and fear of the end, um, yeah. which is why we can have mo- movies like 
the uh, the 2012 what was the Mayan calendar one. Well, I would say that we're apocaphobic, but also apocaphilic, <laughs> obsessed, apocaphilic. We're in love with the yeah. idea, mm-hmm. um, which I think that maybe that's the first thing that we need to start off with is why do you think? Why do we think that it is so obsessively interesting to talk about the end times to teenagers in mm. particular, but then also perhaps for I guess Western Christians? Why do mm. you why do you think that is the obsession? Mm. I just stop and think about that for a second. Um, Chris, I think for some people, the narrative, the Christian narrative that they have in their mind is is really contingent upon getting the heck out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you go back and listen to our, our Shalom episode, which probably wasn't the greatest of our like episodes, but raw, like though. yeah, but but foundational. Um, because if shalom is the point, not escapism is the point, then right. then it's about ushering the kingdom of God in, right? Um, as opposed to escaping from here, but right. And I, I think I think if you've got a view, that's a great point. If you've got a view of the end that it is about getting out of here, then that that changes, that influences the way that you do Christianity, the mm-hmm. way that you read the Bible, um, and so I, I think if you are holding on to that and kind of holding on to it dearly that you have to be slightly obsessed with the end because you want to make sure that you're in. Mm-hmm. You want to know who's in and who's out, yeah. and you want to make sure that you're a part of it. And, um, yeah. I think I think another factor for American teenagers is this sort of, like, violence fetishism mm. um, that exists. Uh, that I mean, when, like, the movies that a lot of our teenagers watch, um, violence is a, is a prominent feature, and it's yeah. it's sort of... I guess it gets the stamp of approval um, from a lot of parents and from Christian culture. Like violence is okay. I mean, we there's as long as it's righteous. Yeah, I mean, and I I fall into this trap as well. Like the the there's a website called Kids in Mind, which I think is great. I I don't just use it for kids. I think it's also like if I want to be conscious of the things that I'm putting into my mind. There's this website that it, but it ranks on language, Mm. um, sex and violence. Mm. And like, I'll be honest when I look at the ranks, those scores, I'm like, yeah, I don't want to see naked people. So I'll look at the sex score, but like whatever the violence score is, I don't really pay attention to it. Yeah. Like we're numb or accustomed. Yeah. Yeah. And, And not even numb or accustomed, but I think that there's sort of a, maybe a thirst mm. to see it and not just violence, but, but vengeance. And I think that a lot mm. of the interpretations that we get of this end times literature is all about vengeance. People getting what they deserve. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, it's no wonder. Heaven forbid you and I get what we deserve though, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> we, we always want what other people deserve. Right. Um, but it makes sense that teenagers would be sort of obsessed with this if like all of their video games all of their um comic books all of their i guess stories that they love and embrace they actually get a snapshot of that in scripture so Mm. i mean if they have a choice between reading through the mosaic law or watching a bunch of people get wrecked um wrecked spelled (laughs) (laughs) r-e-k-t then then they're gonna choose the people getting wrecked yeah so that yeah that and it totally um it totally reinforces uh a certain view of the rest of scripture too for them, mm-hmm. right? That everything is, is leading up to this, this epic battle. And, and I'm not going to say that it's not, right. but, but epic battle in, from our perspective of epic battle, right? Yeah. And I think it also, I think it also appeals to uh, the desire to know. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's a huge part. Yeah. I, yeah. Mean, it's, I, I, I don't think it's strictly Christians want to know about the end. I, I think right. that 
all human beings at some, I mean, that, that's kind of the existential right. crisis. At some point, all humans are wondering about the end. Yeah. And there's like a light and a dark side to that, right? Like part of it could just be curiosity, which is a totally right. good thing. But yep. then I think that there could also be a, a sense of superiority that can sneak in when mm. you're like, well, I know how this is all going to go down in the end and you don't. Right. Um, which goes and, back to like reinforcing that idea again of who's in, who's out. Right. And, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. man, so Revelation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> the last book. So that's yeah. what we're, we're going to talk about. How how do we teach the book of Revelation? Um, I don't actually have I, I, my 10th grade class goes through the life and teachings of Jesus. Um, and so I end up having to make a really clear distinction to the students of the difference between maybe the book of Revelation and what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 24, or Mark mm. chapter 13. Mm. Um, so what we've been talking about so far is eschatology, study of the end times, study of what happens at the end um, at the, I guess, the climax of the story. Well, I guess the climax of the story was Jesus on the cross and resurrection, mm. but, but the final resolution of the story. Um, and I think that uh, one important distinction I make with the students is there is a difference between eschatology and apocalyptic literature. Mm. Um, while we use the term eschatology or the end times and apocalypse, we almost use them interchangeably. But apocalypse is a, is a genre that existed for maybe two to 300 years in the ancient Near East and then disappeared. And, and even contextually, what was going on during that time, right? It's, yes. it's during oppression. Yes. It, it's, it's not when they are thriving. Right. <laughs> and if, if this, hopefully this isn't too much of a surprise to you, but it's a, if it's a genre of literature, that means that John's apocalypse in the book of Revelation is not the only apocalypse. There's the mm. apocalypse of Peter. The last chunk of First Enoch is called the animal apocalypse. There's mm. books like Second Baruch, Second Esdras, Second Enoch, the Testament of Abraham, the Apocalypse of Abraham, mm. the Martyrdom of Isaiah, the Testament of Moses, all of these books um, that aren't Daniel. In- yeah, there's the last chunk of Daniel. Right. Um, all of a lot of these books didn't make the cut mm. for scripture, but they represent. If you read them, you would say, "Wow, this rings a lot of bells." Mm. Um, like the the numbers, the symbols, the the verbiage, the use of the word Babylon and yeah. the great whore and yeah. the horns. Oh and my gosh, the, I want to already like just jump in and start tackling all those, but yeah. I, I feel like we need to kind of start. Yeah. Again, kind of bigger picture with that, right? Right. And so if if we distinguish between apocalyptic literature and eschatology, then like we, we have to ask the question, well, then what is apocalyptic literature? Mm. Um, and so there's some features to apocalyptic literature. Are you familiar with the, the Greek word behind apocalyptic? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is? Apocalypsis. Apocalypsis. Good. Um, which means? I feel like I'm it's a you. revelation. Apocalypse doesn't it just mean to reveal something that's Absolutely. been hidden? Yes, and I think that's really important, is because we can know the name of the book is the Revelation of John, right? Um, but when we hear Revelation, we just think end times. But really, there, there's something that's being unveiled, right? Something is going to be on display that was not, exactly. or something has been hidden. It's going to be unveiled, right? Yeah. And and uh, there's this stuff that's going on in the world, and what the genre of apocalyptic does is it pulls the curtains back and says, "You want to see what's really going on? Hmm. Let's take a look." Yeah, and I want to I want to reiterate something you just said a little bit ago, but again, apocalypsis uh, or apocalyptic literature as a genre no longer exists. It's not something that is used today. Yeah. So that already, that already probably for, for, for those of you, you know, got your thinking caps on that already kind of tells us that our posture when we come towards the book of revelation, um, that we might 
um, maybe need to humble ourselves even even more so than we 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 do with other other texts, right? And really say, okay, maybe we need to explore what is this genre before I even start trying to interpret, uh, you know, these little locusts with demon faces and right. razor blades and yeah, absolutely. Because because <laughs> right? if we don't respect the genre, then we might end up with some really dangerous interpretive methods. Yeah, and even there. Um, I think it might have been the Bible Project guys recently that that said this, but this idea really got into my mind, and I love it. If we disrespect the genre, we we are potentially also then disrespecting the 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 authors of Scripture. Right, we are disrespecting their intent. Um, potentially, and you know, maybe that's too harsh of language for some, but but also what happens is we we end up overlooking and disrespecting even then what was going on in that that first century church. Right when when I when I look at it from just one lens, I have right. to totally disregard what they were going through. Absolutely, and those are our brothers and sisters. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> exactly. And I'm even thinking if like if I wrote a poem about my wife and talked about how her her eyes are like um, drops of of sunlight. Um, and then someone says, well, no, it can't be drops of sunlight because sunlight is really like photons. Her and, eyes would actually be burning. Right. <laughs> and then I would be like, you're, t- you're totally disrespecting me as an author yeah, of yeah. poetry about my wife. Yeah. Um, and so I don't think that, I, I don't think we should disrespect the authors of scripture in the same way. That totally. We should read them according to probably how they intended to be read. Totally. So... What should we do as far as like how we read this? So how should we approach it? Um, let me, I'll start where I start with my students. It's, it seems to be a good place. And so um, actually with that, I, I usually start with a, a Chesterton quote. And G.K. Um, G.K. Chesterton. One of the Gary English. Kenneth. That's oh, probably I didn't not, know that. No. Oh, I, <laughs> I was like, oh, I don't know that. Um, and this comes from his, uh, his book, Orthodoxy. Um, but it, it's this. Uh, Though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature as wild as one of his own commentators. Hmm. And I, I like that. And I start so with, sassy. Right? It, it's probably why, <laughs> one of the reasons I like it. But um, it, I think what it does is it informs and tells us, man, this is a book that has been debated and wrestled with and um, potentially extremely misinterpreted. Right. Um, and so... Yeah, um, we, we acknowledge the awkwardness of it in the beginning. Um, f- from there, I, I actually usually go to what my what my goals aren't okay. uh, with my students. And, and maybe so, those will be the same goals that we have for yeah, this. They, yeah, so, so just goal number one, I'm not, I'm not going to be arrogant and say that I know the only way to interpret it. Right. Um, what I do tell the students is, man, after being informed and after studying and after, after learning and listening and, and having discussion, I do lean in a particular direction. Right. But, but even then... I do not hold on so tightly to it. So I actually make the joke. And um, interesting, you brought up Left Behind. Mm-hmm. I'm finding it less and less relevant as I drop Left Behind jokes in my class. A lot of the yeah. kids don't know about it. But some years back, um, one of the things I would tell my kids is I, I do have a view, and we're going to go through those different views. I do have a view, but I do not hold on to it so tightly as to say that maybe Tim LaHaye and um, is it Jerry Jenkins? Jenkins, um, they might be right. Yeah. So I, I will start with that. So I don't want to be arrogant in my approach. I don't want to say that my way is the only way. Um, I don't pretend to know everything. And uh, we're not going to do a verse by verse analysis. Right. We're, we're going to go into what was going on. Um, what was the occasion for John writing this? Mm-hmm. Um, where was he writing it? Who was he writing it to? And 
why did they need it? Right. What what were what were the intention of these words? And what we find out is it's an encouraging book. Yeah. Um, and I would summarize the book by saying it's about worship. Right. And, and this, I, yeah, go ahead. And this is this is mostly like talking specifically about the genre of apocalyptic, which not just it isn't just as far as biblical apocalyptic, isn't just the book of Revelation, but yeah, it does have the last half of Daniel as well. But beyond those two contexts, um, there aren't other chunks of scripture that fit into the same genre as apocalyptic. Right. Those would fall into some other genre like prophetic literature right. um, or maybe even predictive literature, like where mm-hmm. Jesus, where he does his mini um, eschatological discourses, yeah. the, um, the Olivet Discourse, as it's called sometimes, um, or even portions of Ezekiel or these things where, where they are prophesying and saying what is going to happen, but right. that is different than the genre of apocalyptic. Right. And so yeah. that's, we, we actually start, in, and I do this with ninth graders. Wow. So yeah, <laughs> exactly. Wow. And so you have to, we have to navigate this so gently and carefully. And even some of the stuff you just mentioned there, I, I might want to share with them, but sometimes ninth graders aren't ready for even some of that. Yeah. Right. And so because we, this is the last book. So we, we've spent the class going through all 66 books in some form or fashion. So we've already talked about literary analysis mm. and, and criticism and genre. And one of the things that they do learn about Revelation, first of all, is that it's actually a hybrid, right? Mm. And so you have, because you have pastoral kind of circular letters yeah. in there in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have some prophecy, and then you have some apocaly- apocalyptic yeah. um, genre. And so we identify those things and kind of, um, I, I guess, separate those three and show them how that works and, and what's going on and, and why you have to change uh, how you read it when you're reading those different sections. Right. So we start there. Yeah, and I think an important, maybe it'd be important for us just really quick, just to shotgun a couple of features of apocalyptic. So that way we're saying it's a genre, but then we haven't really described the genre. And so um, a, a few features that um, I have I've discovered in reading different pieces of apocalyptic literature is one, that it is highly symbolic language, right? That it is one of those genres in which you can read a word and it's okay to be like, I wonder what is the meaning behind that word. Right. Whereas like there's other places where I, I've listened to sermons before where like someone has camped out maybe on a word that didn't need to be camped out mm. on because it perhaps didn't have some sort of deeper significance to it. Right. But apocalyptic literature, those words are chosen very carefully, like numbers, like calling something a horn. So all the symbols. And- the types of beasts that are used, all of those have some sort of meaning or symbolic um, importance behind yeah, it. and do you, and do you know do you know why the big kind of grandiose um, fantasy type like imagery and language like do you, have you um, well I know that part of it is because they want to not be found out by the powers that be right so part of it is being per- partially secretive and and that actually takes us even maybe before this aspect of apocalyptic literature but one aspect is that it's actually birthed during oppression right um and some sort of persecution and so they would have to be somewhat secretive but then think about this um psychologically and this is what i try to help my kids understand and so um, i'm actually going to we'll, we'll in talking about apocalyptic literature we'll also put it in context of revelation and so um at the time that John is writing, um, the church is being oppressed. Right. Right. The, the, the church in Rome uh, and, and the empire of Rome is being oppressed. Um, and they're really witnessing and experiencing some horrific things. They yeah. have seen the power of Rome up front and, and, and personal. And so part of when you write apocalyptic literature, not only is you have this grandiose kind of symbolic 
talk. Um, but you also, you're, you're trying to encourage a group of people who are currently being oppressed by, in their mind, probably the worst evil on the planet that they've ever experienced. Right. And so um, you're familiar with John Woo, the producer? Uh, or the, Michael Michael Mann or no Michael Bay the the hero always has a gun in each hand Just, yes and and things are slow mo and and there's explosions everywhere and you know we watched some of these movies and we're like man that that's not real but we love it right right well apocalyptic literature has to kind of be bigger than the current situation that the people are experiencing Got it. and so um here, here's kind of the, 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 the phrase I use with my students or like the, the way that we do the conversation is like, look, if you're in first century Rome and you are getting, you know, this kind of stuff's happening, maybe someone's been raped, you've seen your friends be crucified, you've seen people get whipped, you have all these high taxes, people are being, um, they're, they're feeling the pressure to maybe like renounce Jesus and say Caesar is God, Caesar is the son of God. Um, those people, in the midst of that, when you tell them, hey, guys, there is this battle going on that you're seeing and you're currently being, uh, you're getting mm-hmm. your butts whooped, but there's a bigger battle and right in apocalyptic. So we're going to unveil, we're going to unveil this. There's this bigger battle that's been waging even before this empire right. and it's bigger than this. And so kind of, it makes me think of that old uh, adage, something about like, we may have lost the skirmish, but we won the battle. Is that, I don't, yeah, I'm not saying it right. Lo- lost the battle, but won the war. There it is. Lost the battle. But so, so you're currently losing the battle to Rome, but don't worry, you win the war. And here's yeah. this bigger war. So you, you, you're afraid of Rome. No, here's something even bigger that's going on. And so it uses this big grandiose language to really encourage the listener, the receiver of the letter. Right. And even in referencing the, the quote unquote battle, the, the current things that are occurring, um, even that is grandiose and symbolic, because if you say something like, like Caesar is a jerk who's trying to kill you, then Caesar will come and find the author of this literature or whoever possesses right. this literature and kill them. So instead you say the beast um, of right. Babylon right. is oppressing the faithful. And so it's written in language, um, particularly Jewish apocalyptic uses a lot of Jewish language that if you're a Roman and you read it, you're like, this is a weird book. Oh, well, totally you put wanna, it down. I want to jump in there with a little, little Bible geek fact. Um, the book of Revelation actually borrows more language from any other part than scripture than, than any other book. And so actually Revelation is about 70% borrowed imagery mm. from other texts Yeah, because they're just continuing. Hey guys, we've had this conversation before. Right. We've talked about Babylon before. We've talked about Egypt before. They can continue to use that same symbol. Right. And so uh, if, symbolisms, you, if you're a Roman soldier um, looking at a community of Jews or a community of Christians reading this weird book, you might think, okay, that's a weird group of people and that's a weird book that they're reading. Uh, but you wouldn't necessarily automatically default to, oh, they're going to start a rebellion or they're talking against us. That's so right. It's, that's right. So it's safe. It's secretive. Yeah. yeah it's, it's secretive. Um, some scholars call it esoteric, right? It's, yeah. it's vocabulary that only pertains to that group. So the outsiders don't know what's going on. Right. And then um, uh, since we're kind of just going through a list of like what, what apocalyptic literature is. So we, we have, it's birthed. Um, during some sort of oppression or persecution. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's highly symbolic. It's highly symbolic, 70% uh, from other parts. Um, it's always looking forward to the triumph of good. Right. And this is a key part that I, I, I express to my students as well, is when you are going through crap, uh, and you know, for our ninth graders, they, they have no clue what kind of crap the first century church was going through. And, right. and, and to be honest, neither do I. Yeah. Right? Sure. Um, but when you're going through crap, what kind of, what do you need? You need encouragement that it's all... 
it's all worthwhile. There, there's a reason you're suffering now because there's something else coming. And so apocalyptic literature always look forward to the triumph of good. Don't worry in the long run, good is going to win. Right. Um, it always includes some sort of judgment and salvation, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and it uses images, we already said this, images of fantasy and, and yeah. symbolic stuff. Um, and then here's another important part, and, and this is a kind of a uh, uh, something to think about when we interpret Revelation is that it's not a chronological account of the future. Mm-hmm. Apocaly- apocalyptic genre um, never says from the outset or any anywhere that, hey, I'm going to give you this these symbols, but then also these symbols mean X, Y, and Z for the future. You should be looking for it. That's, right. It's it's not in the author's intention. Now, one one might argue <laughs> yeah. um, at the in the book of Daniel in the apocalypse at the end of the book of Daniel, he does seem to point to a certain number of of seasons and times and years and that sort of stuff. Um, but note that it, it it does not provide like a key um, or a legend that says this is exactly what's going to happen. Um, and we'll get maybe a little bit later. We can touch on premillennial dispensationalist eschatology. You're going to have to hit that a lot. Um, because, <laughs> because um, it's really in some of those time signet or time pieces in the book of Daniel that, that the prevailing understanding of eschatology in the West um, mm. kind of comes from Daniel. Yeah. Um, but um before we do that, there's still a couple of other features of eschatology. One um, more is that there tends to be some sort of spiritual guide. Um, mm. If you read, especially if you read through some of the other like extra biblical ones, there's always an angel explaining stuff. Mm. Um, or there's always an angel at least like leading the person having the vision into the next part of the vision. Um, and uh, and so that is present typically in apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature. And also, I don't know, we can... People argue about if this applies to the biblical versions or not, but that it tends to be pseudonymous um, mm. or that it is written under a pseudonym. So, for example, um, the book of First Enoch, um, Enoch is only a few generations separated from Adam in the book of Genesis, um, and this text appears in like the second century BC. So, it's <laughs> probably safe to say that it wasn't written by Enoch. Um, the Testament of Moses appears in the same time period, um, right around the time of Jesus. So it's probably safe to say that it wasn't written by Moses. And so a lot of apocalyptic literature is written by, written under a false name of a prominent figure in the religious past to sort of lend credibility to the visions that are being seen. Yeah. Now, um, you can see why that that would get sticky, right? It's like, was... <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm already feeling a little tense as you're talking. <laughs> right, right. Was For Dan- our listeners. Yeah. Was uh, was Daniel was Daniel written by Daniel, or was this someone in the second century under Antiochus Epiphanes trying to encourage his fellow believers? Um, was the book of, Rev- of was John's Revelation? What's interesting is John's Revelation doesn't specify. It does not tell us which John. Which John? Yeah, yeah. and John is one of the most common names in Palestinian in the Palestinian first century. Yeah. So all that to say, I, I'm not saying that it was or wasn't written by them, but like it, that is a common feature of apocalyptic literature. And so it's important that we have that under our belts. Yeah. And what I'm hearing you saying too, honestly, just to summarize it is be careful. Yeah. <laughs> just, let's just be careful. Yeah. Right. And let's be careful how we, how we look at it. Absolutely. What is the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word apocalypse? End of the world. Like uh, everything's over. What is that? Like, what images or ideas come to your mind when you think of that? Like destruction, ashes, um, like rubble, zombies. 
Yes. Um. Burning. Cloudy. What I think of when I hear world apocalypse is total destruction and death. Um, so in, in, in doing that, um, once we kind of get that out of the way with the students that here, mm-hmm. here are, here's the, the, the nuances uh, mm-hmm. and kind of the, um, yeah, the nuances of, of apocalyptic literature, we then go into the background, what's going on. And so right. I think even that before we, again, before we even touch it is, is what's going on. Mm-hmm. Why, what is the need for this literature now? And then think about that in light of, we're saying that this literature no longer exists. Right. Um, and, and I've read some really cool papers that say, well, yeah, as soon as Constantine made the religion, like the legal religion of the state, yeah. you no longer are being oppressed by the state. You don't have to talk in code bad about the state yeah, because exactly. you're endorsed and and really I've, I've heard maybe some of the latest forms of apocalyptic that emerges at the very latest the the fourth or fifth century mm. which is right about that time right because there's no longer a need to speak in code and talk about persecution right and so uh, what i've what i found though is as we look into the historical persecution is that when you look and see um the different ways um that that people were persecuted you then start to see all sorts of correlations emerge in the text, right? And when the symbols start to make maybe a little more sense when we look right. at the first century. And, and we can't necessarily do an exhaustive coverage of all of these things, but I mean, it, it does, I mean, for example, um, everybody's favorite number is... Six. 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 Right. Um, <laughs> you have some cool music yeah. we'll edit into there? Sure. <laughs> um, and in... Uh, some of the more ancient manuscripts, the number of the beast is not actually 666, but actually 616. Um, and so if you look into um, Jewish numerology, um, the, the number system actually corresponded to letters. Yeah. Um, and so, so, so the Hebrew is alphanumeric. Yes, absolutely. And so if you spell Neron Caesar, his proper name, um, and you add, out, add up those letters, it equals 666. Six six hundred and sixty-six. Um, however, you can drop the noon, the N, um, on the end of Nero because he was also known as Nero, not just Neron. And the noon is the number for fifty. Um, and so, if you drop the the second noon and use his common name, Nero Caesar, um, you then have six hundred and sixteen, which yeah. is the other number that occurs um, in some of the ancient manuscripts. Yeah, and so that again, boom, just gives you context. Oh, that. And it's, it's actually kind of, it takes, it's like sitting on a whoopee cushion with uh, no air in it. Yeah. What? <laughs> no, you know what I mean? Like it takes the air out of, out of some of the kids. Like they get all excited about 666 and so they're all pumped. And I tell them, you know, this takes about a week to do this, this mm-hmm. unit. And I'm like, okay, guys, tomorrow, you know, we're going to 666. And they get all jazzed and all stoked. And I'm like, well, it could spell this. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Again, and I think that goes back to what we said in the beginning is we're slightly obsessed with the end and we want this crazy number mm-hmm. and we want it to be on our foreheads and, you know, chips in our wrists. And, right. And, um, and yeah. hopefully something that's emerging um, as we talk about the genre of apocalyptic is like note that we haven't really talked about the future very much other than good triumphs in the end. That's it. Right. We've talked about we've talked about the past a lot in historical mm-hmm. context mm-hmm. and this ancient genre um, and about what currently is going on in society and what our responsibilities are to stay faithful um, because that's what the genre is about. But note, 
we're not really saying we haven't said anything yet about the future. No. Yeah. So let's let's uh, let's camp out a little bit more and give a couple specifics, like historical context. Yeah, sure. And so you you've got um, potentially this is the, you know during the later years uh, of reign uh, during Emperor um, Domitian. Um, who also is looked at as a second Nero, um, and so his, his his idea of that, but he demanded to be called a divine title, um, our Lord and God, um, just like Caligula before him, just mm. like Nero before him, and so you've got Christians living in an empire where where they are they are told mm-hmm. right, and, and this is by law, like, like by punish punishment of, of potentially death if you do not call whoever your emperor is our Lord and God, you are now an atheist. Yeah. Um, and so Christians, I mean, and, and think about it. I, I, like this is, I try to get my kids in, into the modern, uh, in, in modern times trying to think about this. If, if someone came and told you, hey, I just need you to say, you know, um, this president or, or this leader or whatever is God, could you just say that? Could you even just go through the motions, even though you know you love Jesus, you love God, right. um, you, you know he, he's going to show you grace, but could you, could, you, could you potentially in front of people, you know, renounce him? Right. And and the alternative is if you don't renounce him that it might hurt you your family more physically, financially, um it might cost your life and right. so you have people feeling the the pressure to compromise. Right. Um, you've also got the imperial cult and I kind of mentioned that with this idea of calling um Nero or Domitian, you know, our lord and god, but you have the imperial cult which is a, a state sanctioned cult, right? Yeah. Um, where at the beginning of your meetings, you are to hail Caesar and pledge right. allegiance to Caesar. By saying Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the savior to the world. Caesar is the son of God. And so you have all these opportunities for people to to compromise. Right. Um, you also, and you know, one of the things uh, I often, maybe romanticize isn't the, the correct term, but when I think about the early church and I think about persecution and suffering... I, um, we we usually go to martyrdom, yeah. Um, and that happened a lot. I'm not going to discredit yeah. that. But you also have just something as simple as Chris. If you were a baker, and it came out that you were now a follower of the way of of Jesus Christ, this alternative kind of cult uh, in the eyes of yeah. Rome, you're um, an atheist. Yeah. yeah, you're an atheist. And there's some other crazy things that they said about Christians, and we'll touch on later. But your business would now suffer as people found out that you were an atheist. So now, so now you have this. Mm-hmm. Especially, you know, you can no longer provide for your family. And so now you're feeling again, maybe I should just compromise. Yeah. Maybe I should, just a little bit. You know what? I'll go ahead and light this incense stick to, to Caesar in front of people. But I know in my heart that I love Jesus. And whoever this author is, I, you know, I do, I do believe it's John. Um, but whoever the author is, is, is reminding them, hey, guys, I know it's bad right now. I know it's hard right now. There's a lot of stuff going on. But you, you guys, this might look bad, but we're going to win in the end. Yeah. And there's, there's the future talk again. He doesn't give a distinct, like, when it's going to happen. But don't give in. Right. Don't worship the beast or the whore or the prostitute or Babylon. All these same terms, you know, for the same thing. Don't worship there your loyalty. You need to stay loyal to God. Right. And note that this this applies not just to um, one Caesar in Rome, but I mean, if Daniel was written in the time of Babylon, we have we have the Babylonian kings who are just mm. as cruel. If it was written actually in the second century under Antiochus Epiphanes, I mean, this guy was a mean. If if a mother <laughs> if a mother was caught circumcising her kid, he would kill their baby and make the mother walk around wearing around the baby neck, as a right? necklace. Yeah. Oh. And so, stop and think about this just for a second, because like, that's that's one of those like crazy facts we can throw out and then just gloss over it. I mean, you had a ruler who who said, like, 
if if you are participating in your old ways, you, you're going to walk around with your dead child around your neck so that yeah. everybody around can see this is what happens when you are loyal to your God and your customs and your traditions right. as opposed to being loyal to me. And That's diabolical. Yeah. And this is the Seleucid king, um, Antiochus Epiphanes, mm. um, who um, – which I think another feature that shows up in Daniel and in the book of Revelation is this thing called the desolating sacrilege um, or the the abomination that makes desecration. Or there's different ways of interpreting this, but um, but it sort of points to when something so horrific happens, um, when you think that you're going to lose every last bit of hope, don't worry rescue is coming. That's it. Yeah. That's it. And that's, and that's the reason for writing. Exactly. Right. Right. So, so you have this pressure to worship emperor, mm-hmm. uh, and it's spreading yeah. because of some of these monsters, like you've, you've, you've mentioned. Um, seems like the author is prophetically seeing that the situation is going to get worse. Right. Right. It's only going to get worse. And so let me encourage you now before you really, you've already kind of You've sold your soul, so to speak. Right. And it depends on when um, when you date these texts. That's but right. like Revelation, um, if if someone lived through seeing the temple be de- destroyed, um, or they lived through the siege of Jerusalem, where people um, people resorted to cannibalism right. um, and eating their shoes and stuff right. because Rome wouldn't let them get Which any food. Which is why Daniel makes so much more sense when right. you read it together. Right? Or Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes, one of the things he did was he erected a statue of Zeus in the temple yeah. and he slaughtered a pig on the altar. Oh, yeah, um, splattered so, the blood like in the Holy of Holies. Didn't yeah. He? And so if you know anything about Judaism, you know that that's about as abominable as it gets, that's right? It. That's it. And yeah. so, and in the midst of that, the Christians, again, like we said, they're, so they're being, they're feeling the compromise, right? They're openly denying Christ. Um, they are willing to strike deals with pagan powers. Um, you have a lot of people reverting back to Judaism because yeah. it's a legal religion. Yeah. Uh, and so a lot of them are, are willing to go backwards. Uh, and then a lot of them are also for economic stability, wanting to join a trade guild, but in joining a trade guild, you, you. are inadvertently becoming a part of the system, which, um, requires you to do worship emperor, Caesar and yeah. emperor worship. Yep. So, so we have, we have the Christian compromises. We have the reasons, reasons for writing. We have the Christian context or not the Christian context, but the historical context, right? So here, here's all the stuff that's going on. And what ultimately is the message? Right. And what I think is an important question to ask is, why is it still in our Bibles then, right? If it was, if it was about that time period, um, and I, I, I wish I had the reference, but it was from my biblical apocalyptic class that I took in college. Awesome. Awesome. Um, but, but I th- believe it's letters. I think Jerome is one of the people. Um, but there was a debate over which apocalypse to put into the Bible, because mm. there's also the apocalypse of Peter, which was pretty popular. Um, but one of the reasons that um, people recognize John's apocalypse as more authoritative than the others is because of its universal applicability, mm. um, because it doesn't just speak to one time period, but because um, this idea of remaining faithful, even when things get dark, even mm. when empire is evil. Um, we talked about kingdom and empire in the past, right? This when the systems it. of sin get so thick that you think there's no more hope. And and you're willing to compromise. Right. You're, you're, you're actually saying, hey, if I can't beat them, let's join them. Right. That really ultimately is kind of that last straw, right? And that's right. where apocalyptic genre says no. Right. And that's why this the literature is still in our Bible, not necessarily because it speaks to some future event, which it does. It, speak, it speaks to the ultimate the restoration, um, of, restoration all of all things. Yeah. yeah. But it, it's in our text. It was admitted into canon because it speaks to today. Yeah. It speaks to every today. 
too. There, there's a there's a line that that John uses that I think is so intense, and oh my goodness, does this resonate with me today? But he actually uses this imagery of like having having sex or having intercourse with the empire, with, right. with the great whore, with Babylon. And he actually says, it's better for you to pull out before you impregnate her, before you become so a part of this empire. Right. And you, you now have offspring with her. You, you are, you are, you've become one with her. Right. Um, it's better for you to pull out and interrupt it um, as opposed to pregnate, impregnate. And I think about that. I think about that a lot today. Like, where am I compromising? Where right. am I sleeping with the enemy, so to speak, yeah. right? Um, and, and wow, when I do that, the, the genre and the, this last book in the Bible really does speak to my situation and reminds me, hey, Wayne, regardless of what you're going through right now, there will come a time. Right. Where all darkness will be judged, including the darkness in my own heart, right? right. And, and, and when we say judged, we're talking about it's going to be dealt with. In order to make things right, in order for there to be restoration, there ha- the darkness has to be dealt with. Right. And that's ultimately <laughs> where, where that book goes, right? Yeah, and that's the beauty of apocalyptic because then instead of our students being obsessed about this, this violent future, we can instead open up their eyes to the violent present. Um, and then say, okay, how do we remain faithful? How do we pull out? How do we stay mm. um, out of empire and continue to say Jesus is Lord instead of saying Caesar is Lord or um, the market is Lord or the government is Lord mm. or um, uh, whatever current war is going on is Lord. We, we instead say Jesus is Lord and wow. remain faithful yeah. in spite of that. Yeah. Right. And then, then we can actually give our students practical steps other than, Hey, here's, you can be a know-it-all. Let's draw these charts, um, and you can tell everyone how it's going to go down. Mm, yeah. I like that. Do we have time to maybe address some of the classical interpretation styles? Um, I know we, we had mentioned maybe talking about some of the symbols, and I, I don't know if we'll yeah. necessarily yeah. get into that. But but there are – if you're listening carefully, you can probably hear what camp maybe Chris and I are in. But we also want to do our due diligence right. and be respectful to our brothers and sisters who are in other camps. Right. Um, can we just address the couple – Camps really quick. Sure. Is that- if if you have done any reading in um, end times theology, like at least pop reading of end times theology in America, you have probably been exposed to what is called premillennial dispensationalist eschatology. So eschatology we have already defined. The study of the end times. Yes. Um, premillennial comes from the last few chapters of the book of Revelation, um, where it talks about there will be a uh, a ruling of Christ for a thousand years here on earth before the final judgment. And so what a premillennial person would say is that there is a literal thousand years that will occur in the future. Um, and we are living in the times before that. Um, so premillennial eschatology, that's those two words. Now dispensationalist um, is a word that emerges in the maybe at the earliest the late 1700s and the the 1800s more like yeah early yeah. I mean not, when I say more like I don't like yeah, correcting yeah. you but it, it gains popularity right for sure, uh, kind with, of early mid 1800s right with the with teaching Darby. of John Nelson Darby yeah. um, and what dispensationalism essentially says is that God works essentially works differently in different dispensations or different, different eras or different time. periods different um, time periods so there's the patriarchal um, dispensation, which is how God interacted with humans before the law. Then there's the Mosaic um, dispensation, which is how God dealt with his people. Then there was the apostolic dispensation, which is when God was starting up the church. And now since the apostles have died, we live in a dispensation of grace. Now, the reason that they make that distinction um, is because, as I alluded to before, in the book of Daniel, um, all of the the prophetic events continue uh, to be... Um, true 
to history, right? right. There, these dates align with kings and the toppling of certain empires and everything aligns until you get to the final week <laughs> of Daniel. And he, he uses weeks, right. not as like literal days, but as, as time periods of seven, mm. um, seven years. And so there's these final seven years where a lot of stuff is supposed to happen, but it doesn't really happen in history. And mm. so um, the dispensationalist interpretation has been that God is not wrong, but what occurred is when Jesus came, that was when the millennial kingdom was supposed to happen. But since the Jews rejected Jesus, that hit sort of like a stop, like it, it paused that clock. Mm. Um, and so now we are in this age of grace. And when Jesus returns, um, God is going to hit resume playing. And those last seven those years last are going to play out, which is sort of alluded to in Revelation with, um, I mean, sometimes he'll say a time, two times and half a time to refer to like half of the seven years. Yeah. Um, and so it, those seven years become this sort of like mysterious, when are when's this final something going to go down before God sets up his reign here on earth? And that's that's kind of the would you say that's the dominant view in our country i would say so um the dominant view in in that is the dominant evangelical view yes Got it. absolutely Got it. um and I, I would i would just say that i know a lot of people who are dispensationalists who are really really smart yeah. um and so for me to say that i i disagree or think they're absolutely wrong um i i think that that would be pretentious and arrogant of me um, I've done that. I've done that recently, and I had to go to the parent and and confess and ask for forgiveness right. because I basically made the kind of the comment that you know if you hold these views, then you're not intelligent and you're not <laughs> right. studying. And then yeah. yeah, yeah, there are some people out there who are so intelligent studying this, and so yeah. my and, apologies to anybody. Yeah, if and, I've done that. <laughs> and so while I don't, I I mean I held I held to premillennial dispensationalist eschatology for um a the may, maybe at least half of my life as a mm. Christian. Um, and the, it's just an understanding the genre of apocalyptic that has, um, allowed me to like loosen right. my grip on that. Right. And, and maybe not even say, um, I'm a full, what is called a preterist. Like all of these ha things happen in the, pre um, in the past or be a post-millennialist, like right. God's going to bring his kingdom through the church. Or I don't really hold any of those positions really solidly because what I've learned, it, especially from Jesus, um, <laughs> is if Jesus says, we neither know the time nor the hour, um, I'm going to, I'm going to trust him. Yeah, exactly. And so if, <laughs> if he's like, I, even the son of man doesn't know, then you know what, man, I, uh, who am I to say that I know? But right. what I can do is take the lesson of revelation and be faithful and watch totally. Jesus's totally. last word in Mark 13. Watch. Yeah. Right. So yeah. just be, be ready. Looking, be ready. Yeah. Now, man, you really unpacked that. That was awesome. Um, I can't do that with ninth graders. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, so I, I present five, but I'll just mention three really quick, and you, you've mentioned them, but just classical interpretation. So I'm just going to some easy vocabulary. So um, one interpretation is, is a preterist view. Right. Right. And um, this is this is the, the idea that events fulfilled uh, were fulfilled in the first century. Um, you've got radical preterists, which um, believes that all of them all of the events in Revelation uh, were fulfilled in the first century. You've also got what's known as a full preterist. Uh, I'm sorry, a partial preterist. Mm -hmm. This is probably the camp I find myself in. Um, but again, I haven't put any roots down or foundations down. But mm -hmm. a partial preterist uh, believes that many, most of the events in Revelation occurred in the first century um, via some of the study that we talked about, some of the context, except for those final chapters in Revelation that 
obviously are talking about the end of of an era and the beginning of a new era, or what we refer to as the restoration of all things, or um, as the Jew says, you know, like it's the ushering in of the new era, right? right. Or the new age. Um, there's a futurist view uh, uh, interpreting Revelation. Right. And premillennial dispensationalist eschatology falls, falls into the into futurist. The futurist camp. Which is that the events in Revelation are, are about the end of the world. Um, one of my my intellectual and maybe um, like hangups with a full futurist view is I feel like it, it, it disregards the historical context context. It disregards a lot of what's going on in the first century, maybe even the reasons for writing Mm -hmm. and sort of frees us from any responsibility to apply the text and frees us from. Yeah, totally. And I I think that's a huge, a huge part. Um, the other one is, is this view and I haven't actually met a whole lot of people who see this, but I think it's kind of cool. It's called the historicist view, which actually views revelation, um, as an entire kind of map of human history. Hmm. Um, so maybe it, it is the, the analogy or symbolism of the entire meta narrative that this right. is just kind of what's been going on since the, since the beginning. Interesting. Um, but I, it seems to be that the preterist and futurist are the, the two kind of major camps that you can be in. Right. Um, now, either way, and here's what I get to with my kids. And again, back to your original question, how many times a year do I get asked? Yeah. What's my view? Once I, I present this and the kids will start asking me for my view. Um, by now, they should have kind of heard what, what camp I'm in. I'm going to use that phrase, what camp I'm in. But I wait until the very end of, of the unit to then have that discussion, and we kind of right. talk through that. But here's what's beautiful. Whether you're a preterist, a futurist, a historicist, an idealist, yeah. uh, in any of these kind of views that you interpret it, we all agree on one thing, which is um, it's there's something bigger going on. Mm-hmm. There is this classic battle of good versus evil, light versus dark, and in the end, the light wins. Right. And I... And for me, there's where my hope is. There's where my encouragement is. So Revelation, ultimately, and this is actually a question on my Revelation test, what one word describes Revelation and its worship? Hmm. Who are you going to worship? You're going you're gonna to worship the empire and the beast, mm-hmm. the whore, or you're going to worship the kingdom? Yeah. When it's coming, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, but it's coming. Right. And I think that... Um, there's there's this tension that I have in me. One that wants to say, well, we don't know, so therefore it's, it's I guess, a kind of not important to know how things go down. Yeah, or like you which, can almost avoid it. Since I don't know, well, let's just avoid talking about right. it and looking and exploring. But then, which, uh, but there there are some problems that's with... That's not your style. Either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but then the tension on the other side is that, no, the, the things that we believe about the end of the story dictate how we interact mm-hmm. today. Um, I, I think that... Um, there's a, a beautiful, no, beautiful is the wrong word, a very in-depth look at the effect of premillennial dispensationalist eschatology on American public policy in the 80s and 90s um, ri- uh, by Richard Boyer. I mean, he's probably only sold like 100 copies of the book because it's so <laughs> uh, sociologically dense. Um, but it does this look at, okay, um, under the Reagan administration, some um, public policy decisions that were made based on interpretations of of Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation. Yeah. Um, there are so to say that it's sort of irrelevant how we interpret it. Um, I think that it's important that we still have these discussions. Yeah. Um, yes, we agree on the essentials. Jesus is coming back. Let's be faithful. We need to keep watch. However, we need to still have these discussions about, okay, well then how do we rightly um, interpret this? Because we may end up um, maybe supporting injustice um, mm. in in an attempt to bring about the end sooner, right? Um, because we desire Jesus's return, we might... 
um, start looking forward um, to some, or, or start maybe even putting pieces in motion that might lead to more oppression, um, more empire, more darkness in the yeah, world. That's um, big, Chris. Yeah, the, the, biblical, <laughs> the guy who calls himself the Bible Answer Man, um, Hank Hanegraaff, he has a beautiful saying um, where he says, God is not, like specifically speaking of Israel, he, he says God is not pro-Jew, he is pro-justice. Mm. Um, and God is not pro-Palestine, but he's pro-peace. Yeah. Right, yeah. and so maybe we should internalize, like, if we internalize the things that Jesus stood for, um, that that's how we can be faithful to Revelation, right? Mm-hmm. Not by saying that the temple needs to be reconstructed, or we need to find a red heifer, or find out who Gog and Magog are. Um, Did you really just say we got to find a red heifer? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but but rather we need to say, okay, what what is the ethos of God, and how do we embody that in our politics and our in our foreign policy as well? Yeah. And what I love, what I love too, is for so many of our students, where they come with these questions, they are fear driven and fear based. Mm-hmm. And what I love, I, I think, with a healthy, even just a healthy understanding of the context of Revelation, it allows us to walk away from the book not afraid, but but hopefully encouraged. Right. Which again, I think, is the author's intention. Right. Things look bad around you. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, look look at our current situation in our country. We're so divided. Right. But don't don't fret. Right. Don't worry. Empires will... come and empires go. Good good is going to win. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's worth it. And so, man, teacher, student, mentor, mentee, whoever you are out there, parent, um, you're on the right side, right? It, things might be bad now, um, but it's going to be okay. Right. And, and I think it's okay to look in the text for that. It, it's going to be okay. We, we're we're going to be okay in the end. Right. And if you, if you <laughs> look at who the hero of the book of Revelation is... Um, there, there's this epic scene toward the beginning of the book where it's in the heavenly throne room and there's all these amazing, huge figures that are singing, holy, holy, holy. Um, and there's this sort of like question mark of who's in the middle of all these concentric rings and the light shines on in the middle and it's the slaughtered lamb. It is the slaughtered lamb who is at the center of this. And if we want to know when we judge what side are we on, um, we, most of the time, I feel like that that language points to who has bigger guns. Yeah. But but we are on the side of the slaughtered lamb. Even when Jesus does his final victory um, at the Battle of Armageddon, um, he wins by a sword that comes from his mouth. Yeah. Um, and the robe he wears is drenched in blood, but it's his own blood. That's right. Um, so if if we're fighting Dude, on someone's side, that's deep. Yeah. Then, <laughs> then we then we fight. By the shedding of our own blood through sacrificial love, right. um, it is the Lamb who wins, not not the roaring. Well, I mean, he is a roaring lion, right? He right. is powerful, but the way that he shows his power is through sacrificial no, love. He shows his power by saying, "Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They yeah. think they still have power in this nail and this hammer, yeah, and their bombs and weapons, and they think they still have power, but no. There's another way of thinking. There's another kingdom possible, right? right. There's a third option." And that's, and I love that. I love that in Revelation, it's not Rambo. It's not Chuck Norris, you know, with, with the bullets strapped all over him. It's, he's still bloody right? to remind us, right? To remind yeah. us, like we follow somebody who gave up his life for this and he's calling us to do the same. Yeah. So I don't, I don't get to strap on weapons and all my body armor and go blasting yeah. people, do I? Right. Yeah. That's correct. Hmm. Um, there's 
Do you have anything else that you feel like? Um, there's a lot to talk yeah. about. I think I think I think really the the goal here was to say here's what's going on in the first century. Here's a here's a way to anchor your conversations. Yeah. Make sure that you're starting conversations, knowing what was going on. Um, why did John write it? What was happening with the church? Yeah. And, and how does it encourage us today? Maybe with that lens. But I, we can interpret other yeah. stuff later if you want. But I, what you want I, to add a little? Caveat? I think maybe one one thing that we can like maybe we'll do a blog post later yeah. about this. Um, someone um, texted you with a question about Jesus's Olivet Discourse. Yeah, shout out to Joe. Love you, bud. Thanks, Joe. Um, But talking about, which we spent most of our time talking about apocalyptic um, with like just dabbling in eschatology. Um, But Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 um, talks about all of these things that are going to go down, but he speaks really historically and the vast majority of those things look exactly like what the destruction of the temple looked like. But then toward the end of his discourse, there's a few things that did definitely look like... um, maybe hinting on apocalyptic like this the sun going dark and the the moon going red which we could say okay maybe it was an eclipse or maybe it was a harvest moon or whatever um but then jesus said all of these things um will Will come to pass before this generation is gone um and so i mean as far as the temple destruction prediction stuff like he's right on because a generation is about 40 years if jesus is crucified at age 30 870 a.d temples destroyed yep. so he predicted the vast majority of all that but then the son of man returning on the clouds um and some of these more apocalyptic signs there's there's a few different ways of interpreting it um but i, I think that maybe a blog post would be more suited to it because there's um this question of was was jesus wrong yeah did he did he mess and, and but i think did somebody misquote him right <laughs> and, <laughs> was and, it fake news yeah Fake news, alternative facts. Um, I, I think I'm what <laughs> I think what um, maybe the quick answer um, before doing something in depth would just be um, those camps that you mentioned: preterist, partial preterist, futurist, um, full futurist, um, or historicist. Like some of those things may apply to this as well, right? Maybe, Depending on what camp you're from, right? Is uh, exactly will influence the way that you interpret what happened. Um, perhaps some of these things did occur in the past, and they're they're just part of it that hasn't. Um, been interpreted yet c.s lewis um actually calls this one of the more embarrassing features of christianity because he says maybe jesus was wrong he actually just says i mean in the beginning of his conversation jesus says the son of man does not know the day or the hour and so when he says this thing at the end like maybe he's just wrong like maybe maybe that he already gave the disclaimer right i I don't know yeah so maybe in in his humanity he gave Dude, we're gonna get hate mail yeah (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm just saying that's what C.S. Lewis said. Send your email to Chris. Him. Are you saying Jesus was wrong? I'm not saying that. Perfect. Cool. Okay, so thanks. Sure. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, we there are a number of interpretations, and we'd have to look more in depth at the facts to see. Okay, is this preterist? Is it partial preterist? Did some of these things happen, and some are still futurist? Um, or maybe even there's a camp called the double interpretation, right? That <laughs> some of these things apply to past events and future events, and so all that that's to say, also partial preterist, right? Kind of, yeah, yeah but it, it just it just doubles down on like some of these things oh, happen got it, twice. Got it, got, it, got it, yeah. And so all that to say, there's a lot of options out there. there but are. as always, we always say join the discussion because the our our duty as Bible teachers is not to give answers necessarily. Now, like there are essentials, and we will give you the answer of Jesus is coming back, right. good triumphs over evil, right. um, worship God and not empire, keep watch, be ready. But w- the, where there are other places like, okay, well, what, is, what does this statement mean that Jesus mm. said? Let's have that conversation. Let's have, figure yeah, it and, out. And, and I love you. You alluded to Shalom again. And, and I think that's 
one of the best places to go with Revelation. If we know what the original blessing was in the beginning, what God intended for us, then the end, we should see glimpses of the beginning, right? right. And so it, when you're having conversations and you define your terms and you go through context and the different interpretations, make sure that you're somehow interweaving this idea of shalom and, and what does that look like? How does it, what does it look like for God to restore shalom uh, when all this crap's going on? And, right. and maybe that will give us some good conversations. Yep. Yeah. Agreed. So yeah. may you have some of those fruitful conversations um, and stay faithful to the slaughtered lamb. Amen. Amen.